If you uh, look down at Sarah and I, we um, did not plan this. I came, I got, I got up and moving before she saw me, and so I was out the door, and great minds think alike. It looks like we're ready for a Christmas card picture, though, doesn't it? If you see Shane, you'll realize we're not. Um, he's probably just got on a Miamisburg shirt or an OU shirt, and he's ready to rock. So, um, But today we're kind of wrapping up a series. We've been in this series where we're talking about surrender, and we're really looking at Jesus and how Jesus lived and what did he surrender to. And so today we're wrapping it up, and to do that, we're going to be in Luke chapter 10. And so if you have a Bible, you want to start getting prepared, we'll be in Luke chapter 10. And... and <clears throat> Kind of the background as to what all is going on. You know, if you don't know much about the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the books of the Bible that really talk about what it looked like when Jesus was alive on earth. Um, And so we're in in Luke, so obviously Jesus is alive. He's been doing some stuff. And so kind of background, he's been doing all these crazy cool things. He's walked on water. He is... Um, calmed storms. He's healed people. He even, if you were here last week, he brought people back from the dead. And so that is, he's doing all these amazing things. He's teaching, he's healing, he's got followers, he's got 12 disciples, he's 12 guys that are kind of following him around everywhere he goes. But he also has a bigger group of people, and it's a group of 72, and then he has crowds of people. And there's these crowds of people that just wonder, what is this Jesus doing? This is crazy. He's doing all these crazy cool things. And so he has this huge group of people around him. Now, in the midst of him doing all of this stuff, the religious people, um, the Jewish religious people around there hated him. They did not like what Jesus stood for. They didn't like like what Jesus taught. But then he had these um, tax collectors and sinners where they like gravitated toward him. They like liked what he was saying. And so you have these two hugely different things happening. You have some people who love him and some people who don't at all love him. And so um, as you're reading through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll see this. You'll see like he's got this almost um, quiet fight going with Pharisees and this, this not always quiet love from tax collectors and sinners toward him. But you see these um, religious people come and question him multiple times. They question him like, hey, Jesus, what do you think about paying taxes? What do you think about divorce? Um, why don't you give us a sign from heaven that you are who you say you are? And they, the, the Pharisees, um, it was this group of people that kept coming to Jesus, the religious people of the day and age, they kept coming to Jesus, testing him, trying to get him to do something, to, and they were trying to trap him, is really what was going on. They were trying to catch him, teaching something contrary to what they believed so that they could go after him. And every time, he would kind of stump them, and they really wouldn't know what to do with it. Well, they also found a lady in the, that was in the act of adultery. There's this woman in the act of adultery, and they find her, they catch her, they bring her to Jesus, and they throw her on the ground before Jesus, and they say, uh, the law says that we should stone this woman to death. What do you say? And Jesus, just cool, just drawn in the sand, and he says, uh, well, whoever's without sin, you, you go ahead and cast the first stone. And people begin to walk away, like, well, My life has sin in it, so I can't throw the first stone. But all the while, you see the Pharisees kind of coming after Jesus, trying to test him, trying to accuse him of things, trying to take what he's teaching and use it against him. Well, there are also, in the midst of that, there's people who are coming to Jesus who are asking him about eternal life. Jesus is talking about his kingdom. He's talking about eternal life. He's talking about all these different things. So you have people coming to Jesus like, okay, how do I gain eternal life? And if you were here a couple weeks ago when Kevin shared from Matthew 19, There was a rich man who came up to Jesus and said, hey, how do I get eternal life? 
And he says, well, what do you think? And the guy says, I think we're supposed to love God and we're love other people. He's like, okay, you're right. And the guy says, well, I've already done all that. And Jesus says, okay, well, then sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And the guy goes away sorrowful. Another time, it's a little bit of a different situation, but a guy by the name of Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and he's really kind of asking more of, how are you doing what you're doing? And Jesus says this crazy, weird thing. He says, you must be born again. And it doesn't seem like it makes any sense in some ways. But then today, we have our text where a lawyer is coming up to Jesus, and he's accusing him. He's, he's testing him. He's trying to figure out what Jesus will say about something. And so he comes up to Jesus, and he asks a question. And that's where we're going to be today. It will be in Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 37. What's going on right in this situation is Jesus had sent the 72 followers out to go tell of, of him coming to other cities to go kind of spread his name before he goes into the cities. The 72 people have come back, and Jesus is speaking to the 72, and then he speaks to the 12 disciples, and then it says, and then a lawyer stood up. Now, when we think of a lawyer, I mean, I think we think of, like, lawyer jokes. Are there any lawyers here? Okay, good. I, I, I was thinking of telling a lawyer joke, but I probably won't. Um, so, uh, just in case I need one at some point in the future, <laughs> it's pretty likely. So, um, the, the lawyer, now, when we think lawyer, we have this thought of what an, a lawyer is. But in this, this is, lawyer is very different than what you would think of as a lawyer. The, a lawyer here... Um, really knows the law. So in the Bible, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, are often considered the law. It's the Torah, the law. And so an expert in the law or a lawyer would be super, super familiar with those first five books of the Bible and oftentimes even have them memorized. Try to memorize Leviticus. But So these are smart, smart guys with head knowledge. And so this lawyer comes up to Jesus and he says, starting in Matthew, or excuse me, in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, <clears throat> Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii. And gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Let's pray. <clears throat> 
God, I pray that you will um, not just have me up here speaking words that I have thought through and prayed through, but that you would penetrate my heart. Pray that it's the same for everyone who is here, that we would um, use your word as you say. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. I pray that you would use your word in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So this lawyer comes up to Jesus. He asks two questions. And I love that Jesus doesn't just give the answer. He asks another question. It's brilliant, especially as a parent. I love doing that to my kids. They ask a question, you just ask them another question. They don't know what to do with it. It's fantastic. But this guy, he comes up and he says, hey, Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, what do you think? You're an expert in the law. What do you think? And the guy basically says, okay, we're supposed to love God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, and we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves." Easy enough, right? Just two things. You can sum up the entire Old Testament in just two things. Just love God and love other people. Easy, right? <laughs> yeah. And he says, you love your neighbors yourself. Do this and you will live. I mean, it's not, it's not easy to do that. To love God with all of your heart. That means your heart is not divided. To God, to anything else, you love him with all of your heart, with all of your mind. That means your mind is not fixed on all these other things that you should be doing, that you want to do. What about this and what about that? Your soul shouldn't be divided. Your strength shouldn't be divided. You should love God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. It's easy. Super easy, right? And then he says, love your neighbors yourself. Do this and you will live. But then the guy, it says, wanting to justify himself, said, who is my neighbor? I don't think that most of us express it this way of asking, who's my neighbor? But I think all of us in this room have somebody that we do not view as our neighbor. I think there is some person at work, some neighbor around your um, house that you don't want to show love to. The reason why I feel like I can say that is because I, I know Maybe a, a student in your class, if you're a teacher. Maybe a client. Maybe the person that works at a restaurant that you go to. But, there, but there's probably somebody that you have a hard time with wanting to show love to. I um, meant to bring a video to show today, and I totally forgot. I got here and got all sidetracked, and so I'm going to tell you about the video that I was going to show you. It would have been way better if I would have showed you a video. But in this video, there is a man, he's dressed as if he's homeless, and he's walking in, this, in like a big city, he's walking, and he collapses to the ground, and he's on his knees for a minute, and he's saying, help me, and people walk, just walk by. It goes on, and he lays down on the ground, and he's, as people are walking by for the first maybe minute, he's saying, help, as people walk by. And it was a true, like, actual footage of, like, an experiment. What would happen if a homeless man fell and was in need of some help? What would happen? For five minutes, people just walked right by him. And as I watched this video, there was one lady who had, like, this little suitcase thing, and she's, like, taken off from the corner of this screen, and she's running. And I'm like, oh, someone's going to help. And she just runs right past him, almost running his hand over with her like little suitcase as she's 
run into work or to the airport or whatever. For five minutes, this homeless man, in, per- in perception, this homeless man falls to the ground asking for help and no one even looks his way. More than like, what's he doing? Oh, he's homeless. Keep going. They decide to do the experiment with a man in a business suit. Same guy. He's wearing a suit, walking on this in, in the city, and he collapses to one knee. Before he even says, help me, he's surrounded by people who are helping him. They do the experiment multiple times, and every time the homeless guy falls, no one helps. And almost every time that the businessman helps, within 30 seconds, he's surrounded by people who are ready to help. The thing about it is, though, is I would probably do the same thing. I think a lot of us would do the same thing. And maybe we wouldn't do the same thing for a homeless person, but maybe if the person, I'm going to be blunt, maybe if they were wearing a turban, we wouldn't stop. For some people, it can be the color of their skin. For some people, it can be their ancestry. For some people, I would be willing to stop, but if it's that guy from work, I'm going to kick him in the ribs while he's down there on the ground. I think the thing that's striking to me is I think the reason why this guy is asking the question, he's wanting to justify himself, he knows in his heart he has hatred. He can pinpoint who it's to. I think the guy in this, he knows that, his, he, that he is a person of prejudice, that he has favoritism. He knows that he doesn't want to treat some people with love. He knows that he... Um, has discriminated in his mind and in his heart and in his actions toward people. In this day and age, Jewish people despised Samaritans. In um, one of the books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or Jonathan, I forget which one it is, it says, and like it's a spot where it says it in parentheses. It's like talking about Jew, a Jew and, and a Samaritan, and in parentheses it says, and Jews do not have any dealings with Samaritans. I think it could very well be the reason why this guy is asking the question, and who is my neighbor? Because he's saying, like, if it's a Jew, yep, I'm all for it. I'm willing to show love. If it's not, I'm not. If it's a Samaritan, I'm not. And think about you and I. We're driving down the street, and you see a car, and let's say the car has a little Jesus fish on the back of it, and you see that they have a flat tire. Do you stop? Probably not. I don't stop for anybody. I just keep on rolling. This, this message has been quite convicting. Maybe you see someone with like a little Darwin thing. Do you stop? Maybe you see someone who, who's all tattooed. Maybe you see somebody who, who, again, who has a turban. Or maybe you see somebody who has a, who's a skin color different than yours. Do you stop? It's that guy from work. It's that neighbor. Do you stop? I think the guy's asking this question because he knows what's in his heart. What about you? What about me? Can you pinpoint a person that you do not love? If so, I want you to think about that person as we continue on. If it is a group of people, 
I want you to think about it as we go on. So Jesus is standing there, and the guy says, who is my neighbor? Jesus could have answered this in one word, and he doesn't. So Jesus, what he says is he goes, let me tell you a little story here. There's a guy. The guy is on a road from Jerusalem to Jericho. This, this area, it's, it's steep downhill, um, big journey. It was known as, I, I think, I forget the exact term, but it was known like as the, the area of blood. Or it was, it, there was a specific name that people knew it as. This was an area where this type of thing would have happened often. So it's not like Jesus is making up a, just a fake scenario. This probably happened every day. Somebody's walking from Jerusalem to Jericho, falls in the hands of a robber the, or robbers. The robbers come out, they strip him naked. They take all of his money, they beat him, and they leave him for dead. The guy has no money. If he does get up and tries to go somewhere to get help, he's naked and has no money. Okay, let's say he, he figures out some sort of way to get up and to get there, and now it's like, okay, uh, we, we're not letting you in the hospital because you're naked. You get there, and you, you, you okay, I'm ready for some help, and they, okay, we can't help you because you don't have any money. But in addition to all that, he's been beaten to the point that he can't get up and do anything about it himself. And then you're reading, and, and, and if you're the hearer, if you're a Jewish person hearing this, some of this is shocking, and some of this is not shocking. So first thing that happens, this guy is there. He's, he's beaten, he's robbed, he's half dead. He has a condition that it will lead to death. He cannot get up. He cannot go get help. He is basically there just to die. I don't think it just means half dead. I think it means like he's on the road to death. But then we're like, oh, okay, a priest comes. And a priest, you know, when I, when I first remember reading this story years and years ago, I remember seeing it and like almost missing something, seeing it and being like, okay, a priest walked by. Wait, 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 wait. why did the priest walk on the other side of the road? He, oh, he must not have seen him. He just didn't see him. And then I reread and I'm like, no, the priest sees him and then goes to the other side of the road. Why? Why would he do this? If you know much about um, the law, if, if a priest, and really anyone, touches someone who is unclean, who's bleeding, who's dead, you go, have to go through this cleansing process that would be not very fun. It would take a serious amount of time, it would take some money, it would take some effort. And so this priest sees him, crosses by on the other side of the road. Have you ever had a situation where you see someone is in need and you just cross by on the other side of the road? I think if we're honest, we all have. But the priest goes by on the other side of the road. A Levite, what is a Levite? A Levite is basically like a priest's assistant. Kind of the easiest way to put it in the most simple, basic way. And so the Levite sees this guy. What's he do? Does he stop and help? No, he just keeps on going just like the priest did. The people who you would assume would be most willing to help. It is basically assumed, because it doesn't say that it's not a Jew, it's assumed that this is a Jewish person in the story that has fallen into the hands of robbers. And the priest and the Levite don't want to help. Walk by on the other side of the road. But then a Samaritan, again, Samaritans and Jewish people hate each other. So this guy who's fallen in the hands of robbers, the, his enemy, 
the people who he hates and who hates him, sees him, and he has compassion on him. That word for compassion is the same word that we, in Greek, that we used last week, if you were here, splachnisima. And it means to feel something so deep, to feel sorrow so deep that you feel compelled to do something. It's more like empathy than just sympathy. And so this man in this story, this Samaritan, he sees this guy who's fallen in the hands of the robbers and he goes to him because of the compassion in his heart. And what does he do? He sees him and he goes to him. He bound up his wounds. Uh, you know what he's doing? He's giving of his supplies. He's giving of his resources. But think about this. How many times would someone have probably pretended to be hurt so that you would stop so that then the robbers could jump out and rob you? When this Samaritan stops, he's risking his health, he's risking his life, and there he is giving of his resources to someone who, for all practical purposes, is enemy. He pours on oil and wine. He basically, he's doing disinfecting his wounds. Then he set him on his own animal. Now, I don't know if people viewed their animal to be like how we view our cars. Other, some animals are made out of leather, and so are some car seats. But would you pick up someone who's bleeding, broken, and put them in your new car? I mean, I feel like if this is me, there's almost this sense of depending upon which car I'm driving as to whether or not I stop. If I'm driving the car that we gave to my son, sure, no problem. But he puts him on his own animal. He's caring more about this person than his stuff. This enemy. He's willing to risk his life, risk his health for him. He's willing to give up his supplies, to give up his time. Look, when you read through this, you see how much time goes by. He, he bounds his wounds. He pours on oil and wine. He sets him on his own animal. He brought him to an inn. And then the next day, he spends the night with this guy. If this guy's married, his wife is probably wondering, where is he? He's supposed to be home. And he's going to be at least half a day late because he's been there taking care of this man. He spends his time. He gets his hands dirty. And then he gives of his money. Two denariates, two days' worth of work. He gives it to the guy. He takes him to the end, gives two days' worth of work. He says, will you please take care of this man? So he he's pays the price for this man to get well. And then... He, he kind of basically does that as a deposit, as like a down payment. Like, I'm going to give you $2 now. It's not $2, two denarii. Take care of him, but I will come back and I will pay the rest. Do you know what he's doing? He is willing to take on all the debt of caring for this man. So this good Samaritan, he's willing to risk his life, risk his health, give of his supplies, give of his time. He's willing to care for a person more than his stuff. He's willing to get his hands dirty. He's willing to put this guy's needs above his own. He's willing to give of his money, to give a down payment, to take on this guy's debt, and he's going to come back. Jesus says, go and do likewise. Jesus could have said, who is your neighbor? Everyone. Any person you see, any day of the week, everyone is your neighbor. 
So who should we live like this to every single person that we see? It doesn't matter if it's that guy at work, if it's that lady at work. It doesn't matter if it's the neighbor that you don't like. It doesn't matter if it's the kids in the neighborhood. It doesn't, it, it, this is what we are called to do. One of the times when Jesus is asked the same question, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And basically it comes up, love God, love other people. And then the guy says, okay, well, what should I, uh, I've already done that, so what should I do? And Jesus says, give all of your money, sell all your possessions, give all your money to the poor. You know what he's exposing when he says that? He says, guess what? You haven't done it. If you had, you wouldn't have anything because you would have given it all away because you would have cared about other people far more than you care about yourself. And after that happens in Matthew chapter 19, the disciples say to Jesus, they say, well, then who can be saved? If this rich man who has loved God and loved other people, but he doesn't want to give all of his money away, if, if, if he can't gain eternal life, then who can? And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19, verse 26, with man this is impossible, but with God it is possible. The fact of the matter is, I know that every single one of us in this room are at the exact same point, is that there is at least someone that we do not want to show love to. Maybe you're saying, I don't know. Okay, let's say someone murders your spouse. Let's say, for those of you who are parents, someone rapes your child. Can you show love to them? I can't. I know I can't. With man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Do you know what this tells me? This tells me is we are called to love everyone, and we cannot do it. You know what that tells me? It tells me that we are just like this man who's laying half dead. If you go all the way back into the beginning of Genesis, what happens? God creates everything, and, he, and there's a tree, and he says, you, you cannot, Adam and Eve, you cannot eat from the tree the knowledge of good and evil. But then a serpent comes in, and a serpent's like, you should totally eat of it. And we're already like a talking serpent. Is that, what is the world is this book? But the serpent says, you should totally do it, and they choose to do it. And what happens? Instantly, they realize that they are naked. Because of the fall, all the way back in the beginning of creation, because of the fall, you and I are stripped naked. Because of the fall, not only are we stripped naked, but we've been robbed. Before that happened, there was this amazing relationship between God and people. But when that happened, sin entered the equation, and there was this curse that came out. The ground is cursed. That's why we have to work. That's why we sweat when we work. It's why the ground has thorns and thistles. It's why there's pain in childbirth. It all goes back to the fall. So at the fall, what happened is we were robbed and we were beaten and we instantaneously got a condition that will lead to death. It's called sin. You know, I think when we read a story like this, it's easy to put ourselves into this, the story of like, the good person, like, we'll read this type of story and we'll be like, I'm probably like Jesus there where I'm telling people how they should live. <laughs> Sometimes we can insert ourselves even into this story and be like, oh, yeah, I'm probably like the priest. I'm probably guilty of walking by. I'm probably like the Levite. 
But I don't think we put ourselves in a situation that really, from a biblical perspective, we are this man who is laying there half dead because of sin. Jesus said, do this and you will live. But the thing about this is we cannot do it. It is impossible. So there we are laying half dead. But thanks be to God that in this story there's a Samaritan because the Samaritan, he comes from another land. He comes, he gives compassion. He stays with him. He's willing to pay the price for him. Even though it's his enemy. He's willing to give a deposit. And he's coming back for him. Does it sound like anybody else? This story doesn't just tell us about that we should be really good people who do this. That's not what this is. Yes, in part, but it also is there to tell us that you can't do it. You and I, we cannot do this. But the text points to someone who, who is a, like a good Samaritan, who comes and it's Jesus. He comes from another land. He comes from heaven to earth. He comes to us. He sees us and he has compassion on us. And when he has compassion on us, he's willing to pay for our debts. He's willing to stay with us. He even gives the Holy Spirit to us. And then he does all that even while we were his enemies. And he's coming back for his people. The text points us to Jesus. The thing is, is that just like this man who was robbed, beaten, and left for dead, he needed, he needed someone to help. We are in that same situation where we need a Savior. It sounds like Jesus. Um, we've been in this series where we're talking about surrender, right? I'm going to make what I believe is a theologically inaccurate statement, and then I will explain what I mean when I say this. I believe that Jesus surrendered to love of all people. Jesus does not look at the color of skin. Jesus does not look at the religious background that you had. Jesus does not look at any of that. Jesus loves all people. We know that because of the Bible. Genesis, I mean, John chapter 3, verse 16, the most quoted Scripture in the whole Bible, for God so loved the world that he sent his son. Jesus surrendered to, to loving people. He surrendered, and it wasn't just a one-time event, he surrendered to a posture of love. I'm going to read just a, a handful of verses to point this out. John 15, 13, greater love has known than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 through 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were his enemies, he died for us. He made us alive together with Christ, and it is by grace that you have been saved. Jesus surrenders to a posture of love. How do we do this? We cannot do it. But... 1 John 3.1 says this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The only way that we do this is if 
it's through him. If it's because we became a child of God and now we look like our father. He must change us from the inside out. 1 John 4, 7-8 says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love God does not know God because God is love. So the theologically inaccurate statement that I said is that Jesus surrendered to a posture of love because it's not totally true. You know why? Because Jesus in his very nature, because God in his very nature is love. He doesn't have to surrender to it. It's already there. You cannot surrender to something that you already are. But it fits in better for me to say it wrong. So I'm going to say it wrong. Jesus surrenders to a posture of love. The reason why we've been in this series of surrender we have house churches here. We have five different house churches. We also have um, guys' teen groups, girls' teen groups, and, and many other things as well. But I, I reached out to as many of them as I could, and I said, hey, what do you think your house church, your teen group, needs to hear from a teaching perspective? And they all said totally different things, but it really all surrendered around a question. How is it that we live a surrendered life to God? And I love that that was the question. I love that that was the, the, the deep feeling of people here is that we want to know, how do we live a surrendered life? And so we decided, you know what, let's look at Jesus. Let's look at what did he surrender to? How did he live his life? And then let's kind of take it from there. That's what, what we've been doing. But here's the thing. I'm going to answer the question. How do we live a fully surrendered life to God? We can't. The only way we can is if we have received, seen, felt and experienced the love of Christ. And when that happens, it changes us from the inside out. And it's not automatic, but, but it changes you in the inside so much so that you have this desire to surrender to the will of God. Like, I, it's not easy. I, I don't always do it well, but there's something that's deep within me that I want to do what God wants. I want to please him. I want to make his name known. I want to, 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 to glorify him. So how do we live a surrendered life? We have to be changed. And once we're changed, we're going to naturally want to surrender our will. We're going to naturally want to spend time with God. Not only to, to thank him for what he's done, but to learn more about what it was that he's done. Because when I come to the Word, I see more about who He is. I see more about who I am. And I see the huge discrepancy in daily as I spend time reading this. You know what I realize? Just how much I needed Him. Daily I'm confronted with it. And so the way that we live a surrendered life is when we've received, we've seen, we've felt, we've experienced His love. Because naturally we'll surrender to His will. We're, we'll surrender to spend time with Him. We'll surrender to a work-rest balanced life. We will naturally not care about our possessions. Because you know what? This world has nothing that it can give me that compares anything to the love of Christ. We naturally won't care about our reputations. Because you know what? Who really cares what someone else thinks of me? I should only care about what he thinks of me. I'm going to be on this earth for a very minuscule period of time compared to all of eternity. It's not even a little dot. And if I have been, if I've seen, received, and felt, and experienced the love of Christ, my reputation doesn't matter. 
if I've seen and experienced and felt the love of Christ, I will, will begin to surrender to humility. I will surrender to being gracious. I will sum, surrender to being compassionate. I will surrender to being a person of love because he has changed me from the inside out. The only way that any of us in this room are gonna even be partly surrendered to God, it is only if we are overwhelmed by the love of Christ. I wanna end with Ephesians chapter 3, 14 through 19. This is what it says. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. So he's, he's praying. And who is he praying to? Verse 15. From whom every family in heaven on earth is named. God has made, has created every single person on this earth. So when we struggle with hatred towards somebody, we are struggling against someone that God himself made for a unique purpose that according to the riches of his glory, he might grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, the prayer is that we would be a people rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. And then it goes on, it says, that you may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. The love of Christ is deeper, further, wider, higher than you can even comprehend. And then it goes on, it says, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The only way that we can be a good Samaritan, the only way that we can gain eternal life is through a relationship with Christ. And when that happens, what will happen is he pours his love into us. So much so that we overflow that love to other people. If I am struggling with loving someone, if you are struggling with loving someone, I think you need to go to the source and you need to be poured into. You need to see the love in which he has for you, even while you are an enemy. And that is what changes us. We have a God who loves so much that he gave. We have a God who loves so much that he has called those of us who are followers to go and make disciples of who? Of all nations. We do not have a, a God that has hate in his heart. Let's pray. God, I... Um, my heart can so often be a breeding ground for hatred. My heart can grow hard toward even those who I love if I am not allowing you to make me new. It is my family that has seen me at my worst. God, I, I, I know that I need your love to get through each day. I need your love to fill me that overflows. And God, I pray that, that we as a church would be known by your love as you prayed. And God, the only way I think that that really will truly happen is if we are a people who are overwhelmed with the love of Christ. So God, I pray that even today as we talked about your word and seeing 
really ultimately how Jesus so much resembles this good Samaritan. I pray that it would drive us to our knees. That it will cause me, who will cause others, to be overwhelmed by your love. In Jesus' name, amen.